That was wonderful. I'm looking forward to the day we can do that, aren't you? The older I get, the more I'm ready to see Jesus. Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 16. One day we will behold him with our physical eyes. Right now, I want us for the next few minutes to behold him in his word. So we're going to look at Matthew 16 in just a moment. And while you find that, let me again express my thanks to all of you who helped with the Bible Project. It was a wonderful time of, of blessing and the, the privilege of putting our hands on the Scripture that are going to touch many lives. And we're going to talk more about that. We're going to dedicate these Scriptures as we send them out this evening. And you'll get to be part of that in the evening service when Brother Chad preaches for us tonight. And we close with a dedicatory prayer. Uh, we also had a good time of fellowship during, during the assembly times. I told uh, Kurt Tidball, he was there uh, Thursday afternoon, I said, I'm glad you're here because I wanted somebody to pick on who wouldn't get offended. <laughs> and he said, you might want to check your tires before you leave. <laughs> <clears throat> so I guess I was wrong about that. But. Matthew chapter 16 in your Bible, let's get right to the message. If you have that, let's bow and pray together and ask the Lord to help us see him in his word today. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the privilege to preach. Thank you for the privilege to open this book. And we've had a copy of it probably all of our lives, most of us. And anytime we want, we can open it and read it in our own language. And we thank you for the privilege of being involved as a church to get the word of God to a waiting world. Now, Lord, for the next few moments, would you please give us clarity of thought, focus of mind and heart as we learn from this precious book. I pray for your help and your spirit's fullness. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Matthew 16, verse 13. The Bible says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say, Some say thou art John the Baptist, uh, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You might wonder reading that text what this has to do with missions conference or missions emphasis. But I think we'll pull it all together and you'll understand as we go through the message. An identity crisis is a psychological term used to describe a period of intense self-examination an uncertainty about one's self-identity, values, and purpose in life. During such a crisis, individuals often question their beliefs, their goals, their role in society. It can happen at various life stages, such as adolescence, or midlife, or midlife, or midlife, <laughs> or, or it can happen in response to significant life events. A person can feel confused or anxious or conflicted as they attempt to reconcile all of their past experiences 
with their future goals, trying to find a more authentic sense of self. Resolving an identity crisis often involves introspection. Too much introspection is a problem because it's not all about us. And this is not from a Christian source, but listen to this. Resolving an identity crisis often involves introspection and seeking guidance from trusted sources and making choices that point you in the right direction. And I want to say to follow up on that, you cannot know who you are without considering who God is and what His plan is for your life. We do have a serious identity crisis in America, do we not? Everybody's wondering who they are. Everybody's changing who they are. At least they think they are. I went through an identity crisis, I believe, when I resigned from my pastorate in Ohio after 16 years, and God was leading us into missions, and the difficulty of that caused a crisis in my heart. My wife said to me during that process, some of you have heard this story, but she said, is, is, can you make sure, can you assure me that this is the leadership of God, that we leave this church and change the whole direction of our lives? And then you won't believe this, but she actually said these words to me. She said, if you're having a midlife crisis, just go buy a motorcycle. <clears throat> and that made my decision harder because I really wanted a motorcycle, you know. <laughs> I actually think I've had a couple more crises since then. But here's what I want to do, do today. I believe reviewing this text today that we just read is the introspection we need. And it is the guidance we need from a trusted source to help us determine our true identity. You notice as we opened in verse 13, Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi. That's a city named after Julius Caesar and Philip of Macedon. A town near Mount Hermon on the north border of Israel. It's a Gentile town. This is not uh, among the Jews. Jesus is not among his own people in this text. He's away from the Jews, way up in Galilee, far north, because the Jews are starting to want to kill him. But the Bible says several times in the Gospels, his time had not yet come. He said, my time is not yet. He had been accused of blasphemy for calling himself the Son of God. He had been accused of doing miracles by the power of the devil. And the rejection of the Messiah had begun among the Jewish people. This period of Jesus' ministry is often called the withdrawal period because he withdrew from Israel to show that the kingdom would include the Gentiles. Matthew 14 through 20, chapters 14 through 20, actually are focused on the training of the twelve, training the men who will carry on the mission of God. And this text we just read is part of their training. And in this text, the disciples are going to learn two critical things, two very important things, they're going to learn their authority and their identity. And I believe this is one of the most critical texts of the New Testament, one of the most important portions of the Word of God. And it's going to answer two very important questions for us that we'll get to in just a moment. I actually heard a pastor say recently who had been a pastor for about four decades, he said, if I only had 10 Bible texts from which I could preach to my people throughout the entirety of my ministry, this text would be one of my choices. We're going to answer two very critical questions for us this morning. And the first question we're going to answer is this one. Who is he? Who is he? This is the question that has caused all the trouble in the world, has it not? 
Who is this one who claimed to be Jesus? Jesus' first question in this text, and he often used questions to lead the disciples to correct answers, leading them through some proper introspection to determine their authority and their identity. He asked this question at the end of verse 13, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Who do the people say I am? Their answer was, well, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. The consensus of their answers is that you're a great man, you're a supernatural man, you're, you're a throwback to the days of the prophets. They had a very lofty and high idea of who he was, but they missed the truth of who he was. In Matthew 24, 41, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. They were gathered, uh, gathered together and he asked them, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees said, he's the son of David. And I'm not quoting this exactly, but Jesus then said to them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? And he quoted from Psalm 110 verse 1 where, uh, where David said, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. And the next verse says, If David then, Jesus said to the Pharisees, If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? How can he be the son of David and the Lord of David at the same time? And the Pharisees couldn't understand that. How could he be David's son and David's sovereign at the same time? And the answer to the question is because he's more than just a man. He's God incarnate among us. The Jews didn't understand that. John 10 verse 30, Jesus said, I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up stones to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. They accused him of blasphemy because he was calling himself God. They didn't understand who he was. They didn't accept the fact that he was more than just a man. If you think about it, they didn't believe what the angels knew. The angels came and announced at his birth, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. They didn't understand what the demons knew. In the tombs, in, in the Gadarene tombs, they cried out saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? You see, Israel was expecting a political figure who would come and dole out goodies for the nation and restore world domination to the people of Israel and remove them from the occupation of the Roman Empire. And, and they were looking for someone to deal with their immediate problem of Gentile domination, but that was not their real problem. Their real problem and the reason they were under Gentile domination was the judgment of God. And why were they under the judgment of God? It was because of their sin. Their, they did not want to repent of their sin and turn from their sin. That was the real problem. You know, every four years in our nation, we hold an election and we always have hopes of finding a new candidate that will promise us a bunch of stuff. And we put our hopes in him to fix our broken nation. And we still, 240 plus years later, live in a broken nation, don't we? So the question of Jesus is, who do the people say I am? If you ask the liberal theologian, who is Jesus? They will say, he's a great man. He's a person in whom the idea of God is exemplified. He's a person of the highest moral character, but they will stop short of saying he's the Son of God. 
If you ask the cultist, who is Jesus? They will say he's a great moral example, a great teacher, a son of the gods, but they will not say he is the son of God. If you ask the average person on the street today, who is Jesus, you're going to get some of the wildest and craziest answers you could imagine. So the first question from Jesus is, who do the people say I am? It's a very, very critical issue. The next question he asks is in verse 15, if you look at that with me. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? The disciples and us face the necessity, the absolute necessity of personal acknowledgement of who Jesus is. Personal, mental, verbal acknowledgement, heart acknowledgement of who he is. Now he's speaking to the disciples here and, and those who had spent, they had spent by this time about two years with him maybe or, or somewhere in the middle of that process and they should have known the answer to this question. Just right off the top of their head, they should have known when Jesus said, who do you say I am? Well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And may I say, we who have been under the sound of the gospel and we have been in a gospel-saturated land, we ought to immediately acknowledge right off who Jesus is and admit that he is God in flesh, came to save us. I have two answers to this question. I believe we have to answer it because it is the most critical element of our faith. Who is he? I have two answers to the question. Number one, he is God. Can you say amen right there? He's God. Very simple. Look at Peter's wonderful answer in verse 17. Jesus answered and said unto him, I'm sorry, verse 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter said, You're more than just a political religious figure. You're more than just a good teacher. You're more than just a moral example. You are the Christ, the anointed one. You are the Son, a distinct member of the Godhead, of God the Father. You are the Christ, the Son of the God. Now, the word is not in the Bible, but what Peter is referring to there is the Trinity. One of the most beautiful doctrines of our faith, that he is three in one. I read a book recently called Delighting in the Trinity, and it's the best book I've ever read on the subject, and kind of opens that up to, to your understanding. But in Matthew 28, verse 20, the Bible says this in the middle of the verse, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. 1 John 5, 7 says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And this is an acknowledgement we all have to make. Now, here's, here's what I want to lead into next. How did this wonderful response come from Peter? How did he get to the place of acknowledging this great, vital truth of the faith? This is very important. You note here that Jesus did not commend Peter for his great wisdom. See, one might say, I have weighed all the evidence and I have determined that the Christian religion is true and trustworthy. One might say, I read the Bible and I decided to accept what it says. One may say, as I heard a guy say one time, I cleaned the mud off the reins of my life and I turned them over to Jesus. Someone says, I was traveling down the road of sin and one day I found Jesus. I have news for you this morning. You didn't find Jesus he found you. I want you to note the response of Jesus to this, to this answer from Peter. Verse 17, And Jesus answered and said unto him, <clears throat> Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. 
the very words Simon Barjona helps us to understand that Jesus was designating to Peter, you said I'm the Christ, the son of the living God, but you are the son of a man. Simon, the son of Jonah, is literally what that means. You can go to Ancestry.com and you can find your heritage, but my heritage is from heaven. Flesh and blood did not inform you of this, Jesus said. You didn't figure this out on your own. It wasn't your great wisdom. It wasn't, it wasn't your great intellect. You didn't figure this out because you're so smart. This was revealed to you because my Father in heaven revealed it to you. You didn't find the Lord. He found you. He wasn't lost. We were lost. And this is establishing for us this morning who He is, and it's establishing for us that He is God, and He is the author and finisher of our faith. John 6, the Bible says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. That's the same word used as when Peter put the net in the water at the command of the Lord and drew the net in full of fish into the boat. In John 6, 65, the Bible says, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. In Acts 16, verse 14, speaking of Lydia, the Bible says, A certain woman named Lydia, seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened. Are you still with me this morning? Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Philippians 1.29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. What are these verses teaching us? They're teaching us that we didn't deserve this. And it was the sovereign will and hand of God that brought us into His family and into reconciliation through the blood of His own dear Son. I don't let these verses make you nervous because we're not Calvinistic, all right? Is that making you nervous? Were y'all getting nervous when I was reading those verses? That was a rhetorical question. Sorry. <laughs> Here's what these verses are telling us. Listen carefully. These verses are telling us that the first member of the Trinity, God the Father, called me and drew me. And the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, informed me and convicted me. And the second member of the Trinity, the gracious Christ, the Son of the living God, came to this earth and died for me and came to seek and to save my soul. And He pursued me and He made possible the redemption of my soul. Do you remember the day when you, he, he drew you? Do you remember the day when you were convicted of your sin? I remember like yesterday as a six-year-old boy sitting in the back pew of Springdale Baptist Church in Boaz, Alabama, and the preacher preached a sermon, and for the first time in my life, I knew I was a sinner on my way to hell, and I walked out of that door when they prayed, and I went down, in, in, down the front steps and got in the back seat of my dad's 1965 Volkswagen knowing I was a sinner, and I put my trust in Jesus. You know what Jesus said to this man right here, Peter, who answered this question? He said, blessed are you. Blessed are you. If you're here this morning and you know he is God, you know he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you are a blessed person. These verses do not teach that we're one of the lucky ones that God elected, but these verses are here to teach us that we are not the author of our faith. We're not the author of our salvation. He came to me and he saved me and he's God and I'm not. And this effect ought to have, or this ought to have a humbling effect on our hearts. 
It ought to have a, a, it ought to create a deep gratitude in our hearts. And I'm going this way for a reason because this recognition and this acknowledgement should cause us to bow in holy submission to His will for our life and His plan for our church. He's God. Number two, He's the founder of the church. Would you look at the next verse, please? Verse 18, And I say unto thee, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'm not going to give you a theological treatise on the church this morning, but I'm looking at the practical implications of this text. In verse 18, he said, You're Peter, and upon the rock I'm building my church. Now, I have to clarify here because Jesus did not say, You're Peter, and you're the rock I'm building the church on. The foundation of the church is not the Apostle Peter. Can I get an amen right there? The foundation of the church is not the one that five verses later Jesus will call the mouthpiece of Satan. That's not the foundation of the church. The foundation of the church is not the one Jesus had to embarrass three times with, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Because Peter had denied the Lord three times. <clears throat> the foundation of the church is not the one that's going to stand in front of, uh, the, that Paul is going to have to confront face to face for his prejudice against the Gentiles. I was passing through North Alabama on a Sunday that I didn't have a meeting and I went to a, a little country church where my, one of my childhood friends is a Sunday school teacher. He's about 10 years older than me, but he, he was a dear, dear friend all through my, my teenage years and growing up years. His name is Buddy Joyner and he's He's a, he's a redneck to the core. Buddy Joyner was teaching Sunday school and he was going through Revelation and he had no notes. He was just walking through the scripture, just talking to us and, and teaching. And right in the middle of it, somehow he got over to the place in, in the epistles where Paul withstood Peter to the face for his prejudice against the Gentiles. And here's how my redneck friend described that experience. He said, Paul got right up in Peter's face and he said, hey, knock it off. I guess that was effective, I don't know. But that's not, Peter's not the one, Peter's not the rock of the church. In verse 18, it says, upon this rock. Who's the rock? Well, in Matthew 7, 24, the Bible says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a man which built his house upon a rock. The rock is the foundation, and the foundation is the acknowledgement Peter just gave, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You Jesus, are the founder of this church. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 28.16, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, <clears throat> Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Matthew 21.42, The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. 1 Corinthians 10.4, The spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. If you want to believe that Peter was the founder of the church, verse 18 is all you have. But if you want to believe Jesus is the founder of the church, you got the whole Bible as your support base. So Jesus was saying, I will build my church upon this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the first use of the word church in the New Testament. The word ecclesia is called out assembly. Not just the nation of Israel, but the body of Christ. All those who will be called out of this world to salvation, who will become part of this church, 
And from this day forward, from Matthew 16 forward, there have been local expressions of this called out assembly all over the world and all down through history who have publicly confessed that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. At Faith Baptist Church, the founder of this church is Jesus. And he is its foundation. Can I get an amen right there? So, who is he? He's God. And he's the founder of this church. Now, before I give you the second question, I want to give you this thought. God is on a mission to reveal his glory and extend his grace to every kindred, tribe, and tongue. That's what God's been doing since time began in Genesis chapter 1, and that's what he'll be doing until we're all gathered at the throne with every kindred, tribe, and tongue praising our God. So if God is on a mission to reveal his glory and extend his grace to every kindred, tribe, and tongue, what do you think he founded the church to do? Here's the answer, or here's the next big question, rather. Who are we? Who is he? He's God. He's the founder of the church. Who are we? Now, if who is he is the question that caused all the trouble, has caused all the trouble in the world, I believe it is. Who are we is the question that has caused all the failure in the church. Howard Hendricks said, the greatest problem in the church is an identity crisis. We don't really know who we are. Here are my two answers from this text. We are the church. The church is not a human institution. It's a divine creation. It's not built on the shifting sands of human wisdom. It's built on the unchanging truth that he is God. As followers of Christ, the Bible teaches us that we become living stones built upon this foundation, 1 Peter 2, verse 5, firmly placed upon this unshakable foundation of Christ's teachings. Just like a solid rock provides stability and security, so too our faith in Jesus and who He is gives us an unyielding foundation on which to build our lives and gives the church an unshakable foundation on which to build its mission. Now there's an interesting verse that follows what I just read. Verse 19, would you look at that please? And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What are these keys of the kingdom? And what is this binding and loosing? In Ephesians 2.18, the Bible says, For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And listen and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The Bible is teaching that this church is built upon the foundation that Jesus established in the presence of the apostles right here in this text of Scripture. We are the continuation of what God founded. We are the continuation of God's mission. Now, it may seem at first glance that Jesus is is, is declaring that I'll found the church, I'm going to be the founder and foundation of the church, but I'm going to give you the keys, and whatever you want to do with it, you can do. Whatever you decide to bind in heaven will be bound in heaven, and whatever you decide to loose in heaven will be loosed in heaven. It may appear to some that Jesus is, is, is founding this thing and is stepping away from it and letting you design it to fit your needs. 
I want to tell you emphatically this morning, that's not what, ha- not, what ha- not what is happening. There are only two ways to have authority. Number one is by virtue of who you are. And I tell you that God is our authority by virtue of who He is. Can I get an amen right there? The second way you can have authority is if someone with authority designates it to you. So in this verse, Jesus Christ, the one with all authority, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth, is giving the keys to the kingdom to the apostles. And we have become living stones upon that foundation. I want you to know he's not giving the apostles the authority to do whatever they want. He's not saying, whatever you decide, Peter, you and the other apostles apostles are in charge and you get to run things how you want to. Jesus is not turning over the church for the apostles to run, but he is designating the authority of the church to the apostles to carry out his mission. What is his mission? To reveal his glory and extend his grace to every kindred, tribe, and tongue. The keys are the keys to the kingdom of heaven, not the keys to your kingdom or my kingdom or my empire or your empire. There is an authority behind the designation and the authority lies with the Christ, the Son of the living God. This means we are the ones to carry forth the mission of God. We are the ones to bind the things concerning the kingdom and to loose the things concerning the kingdom and to declare and proclaim and propagate His glory and share His grace with the whole world who's waiting. The, the church, the kingdom of heaven has rules and it has an authority. Let me illustrate it. <clears throat> Ed Bastian is the CEO of Delta Airlines. Ed Bastian can bring in a five foot two inch, 105 pound lady and explain to her the rules and the procedures of Delta Airlines and how our planes operate and how our, our, our service is carried out. And this lady is, be, is being brought in to serve as, we used to call them stewardesses, right? Now they're flight attendants, to be politically correct. Uh, but, but she learns all the rules. She goes through the manual. She goes through the training. And Ed Bastian can give a 5-foot-2, 105-pound lady the authority of Delta Airlines to carry out these rules on that airplane. Now, you can get on that airplane, and you might be 6-foot-6 six six and weigh 320 pounds. And if you get out of line, this little lady has the authority to look at you and say, sit down and shut up. And if you don't sit down and shut up, when we land this plane, I'm going to call the pilot and he's going to call the police and they're going to come onto this plane and escort you right off to jail. She has all the authority to do that because she was given the procedures and the rules before she took that job. She's not making up the rules. They've already been established. The CEO is designating upon her the authority to carry out those rules. And the church has rules. And the kingdom of heaven has truth. It it has a message, and we are the divinely appointed agency of God to carry out the mission of God. God is on a mission, and this church was put here to carry out His mission. Here's the second answer to my question, and I'm basically just uh, amplifying what I've already said. We are the messengers of God. We are the people of God. We are the living stones built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. We are the people chosen and converted by God, brought into His kingdom, to the truth, and for the truth. 
We're called to assemble for common worship, and we're called to carry out the mission of God. I love what Brother Kagan said in the service last night, if you were here. He said, this is the Word of God. This is not a book on par with the Quran. It's not a book on par with the Bhagavad Gita of the Hindus. It's not a book on par with the Book of Mormon for the Mormons or the New World Translation for the Jehovah's Witnesses. This is the Word of God. We have a book we are responsible to. What is the message of the church? It's the message from the Bible. It's the truth of the gospel. And I want you to think about this. We have been given a body of truth nobody else in the universe has been given. Do you realize that? No other people outside the people of God have been given this body of truth. And no one outside the people of God have been enlightened to this truth so that we understand it. He gave us this truth. He gave us the Spirit of God to reveal this truth. And because we have the Spirit and these things are spiritually discerned, this book makes sense to us. We understand it. Would you agree with me this morning? We are blessed to have received the gospel and believed it. One third of the world's people groups, uh, two thirds of the world's people groups are still without it. Over 7,000 people groups that have no access to the gospel. Over 3,800 language groups that still have no scripture in their own heart language. 3.3 billion people who are in the grip of either Islam, Hinduism, or Buddhism. But you and I, we know the Christ, the Son of the living God, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, and I believe this message. We're surrounded by insanity, aren't we? We're living in a world that is increasing in indecency, immorality, perversion, danger, murder. And I'd have to add, what do you expect from a people who have renounced the Christ, the Son of the living God? While that world we live in may give us something to contend with, it does not change who we are. The Bible stands and we do not change what it teaches. We have no authority to do that. And I want you to hear this. If the whole world goes nuts, we are to shine brighter upon the truth of this book. We have a book. We have an authority. And he's Jesus. We have made no vows to the world. The world didn't save us. Jesus did. We owe no allegiance or loyalty to a world gone mad, but I owe Jesus everything. The world didn't call me, Jesus called me to himself. I have a book, I have an authority, and we have, number three, a common belief and message. And that's the gospel of God's dear Son. There's one true gospel, just one, just one. And it's found in the one true book, and it's backed by the authority of the one true God. And we have no right to nice it up so we don't offend people. We have no right to water it down so we can make it more palatable. We have a book and we have an authority and we have a message and we have a responsibility to take that message to the ends of the earth. And nowhere is this link that I'm preaching about this morning made more clear than Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth, Jesus said. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you 
always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. The church, please listen, the church is not here to create enough activities to keep you entertained. The church is not here to provide a social outlet for your emotional needs. There's some great benefits to being a part of the body of Christ, isn't there? Great fellowship. I love good fellowship. But don't come to the church asking, what does this church have to offer me and my family? Come to the church asking, what part can I play in the mission of this church? We have a book, we have an authority, we have a common message, we have a responsibility to share it. And I have to close with this thought, we will be victorious. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This verse assures us that the powers of darkness and sin and death will not prevail. Will not prevail against the church. The church stands upon Jesus. And it stands despite the challenges and persecutions and struggles it may face. And evil will not overpower it. The church stands by the power of his resurrection because he conquered death, hell, and the grave. The church stands as a beacon of hope in a world filled with darkness. The church stands as light, shining his love and his truth and exposing the darkness of sin and despair. And as we stand united with Christ, we need to know this and believe it. We are a force to be reckoned with, impacting lives and communities and nations for the glory of God. We're not a passive organization. We're a living organism. We're not to sit here idly by while the world marches to hell. We're called to action. We're commissioned by the Lord himself to join this mission, preaching the gospel, making disciples, and sending our own to the uttermost parts of the earth. Our text answers two great questions. Who is he? He's God, and he's the founder of this thing. And who are we? We are this thing. And we're called to carry out his mission. Can I get an amen right right there? So let me tell you, if you're looking for purpose, if you're having an identity crisis, and you're looking for purpose, and you're looking for meaning, and you're looking for who you really are, I just gave you from the word of God who you really are. If you're a child of God, I just told you who you are. We are the church. And if you're looking for fulfillment in your own self-identity, Lose yourself in the mission of the church. Would you bow with me for prayer, please? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power of this text of Scripture. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We happily acknowledge that truth. You are the founder of the church. And we are so blessed to be part of of your work. Would you help us this morning to recognize who we are? We're not here to have a great career and build a great retirement fund and enjoy the rest of our years for our own personal enjoyment. We're here to be part of a mission. Would you call someone from this group this morning to join your mission in a foreign land? 
And would you lay upon all of us the individual responsibility to be on mission with you right here where we live. I pray in Jesus' name.